We're going to hear from the Word of God now. Geraldine's going to come and bring out scripture from Mark 9. I encourage you to open up scripture either in one of the hard copy Bibles or on your um, device or else follow it on the screen. Thanks, Geraldine. Thank you. We're beginning with um, Mark 9, verse 1, and it's on page Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there he appeared before them, no, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And then we go to chapter 10, uh, verse 35. Oh, that's it? Okay, we're not doing that Thank you. I have to confess, I did exactly the same thing. It's the time on the order of service. It took me about half an hour to work it out. <laughs> it, I, I did the same thing. I went, oh no, there's more, ber- more verses and I haven't written a sermon about that bit. But it's the time. <laughs> um, first of all, I bring you greetings from Kay Reed. She sent me a text on Friday. She said, oh, you're going out to Willie Church again. She said, awesome people, awesome church. I miss them. Please tell them I said hi. So Kay says hi. Um, The other thing is, full disclosure, I've had a cold this week. This is not my normal voice. Um, I'm feeling fine, but I'm still up for sympathy. So um, just to let you know. So if I start a coughing fit in the middle of my sermon, please be gracious. Um, Will you pray with me and speak with him today? Father God, thank you for this time to sit with your word. As we open this passage this morning, we pray that we'd also open our hearts and our ears. We pray that we'd be ready to hear what you want to say to us. I pray that the words I speak this morning will be forgotten, but the ones that you speak will be drawn into our hearts and stir us to response. So we ask that we be willing and ready to hear this morning in your name. Amen. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you again this morning. Um, This is my winter sermon. Last one was my summer sermon. 
Um, last time I was here, I spoke with you about seed and soil. We had a little bit of an agriculture lesson. And because I love a good bit of alliteration, I've gone with S words again this morning to keep it nice and simple for us. Our words this morning are shelters and story. So before we dig into any specific passage, it's important to know its context. I'm going to grab this because this feels weird. That's better. So it's important to know where whatever we're reading is, in, is located in the bigger story of the Bible. Now, when I say story, I don't mean fable. I mean narrative. So please keep that in mind as we go. We're talking about truth this morning, not made up stuff. So let's have a look. Uh, before we have a look at what's happened in the passage, let's have a look at what, what has happened just before. And I think you guys are a bit ahead of me on that because you've been working through Mark, so you know what's happened just before. So maybe this is for my benefit. But today's passage is from one of the Gospels. It's from Mark. And it's speaking about a particular event that occurs with Jesus and some of his disciples. And at this point, Jesus has already spent a lot of time with his disciples. He's been teaching them. He's been speaking to crowds of people and they've been listening in. He's performed all kinds of miracles and in the last couple of chapters of Mark alone, Jesus has driven a demon out of a child. He's made a deaf and mute man hear and speak. He's fed 4,000 men, plus who knows how many women and children, with just seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And he's made a blind man see. And that's what we're coming into this passage from. He's also begun speaking about suffering and being killed which we all know with the benefit of hindsight. We know that that's ahead of him. But at this stage, the disciples had no idea. It's beyond what they can comprehend. So that brings us to today's passage. And at first glance, this passage sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. So can I invite you to use your imagination for a moment? Um, Let me set the scene for you. So here's the scene. Jesus stands and he makes a dramatic statement to everyone who's listening around him. Some of you standing here today will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And you can cue the dramatic music and the rolling drums and thunder. There might be lightning. There's people looking scared. It's very dramatic. It's probably in black and white. The scene fades and we go to an ad break. Now back from the ad break and some text on the bottom of the screen says, six days later, dot, dot, dot. The scene opens and Peter and James and John are following Jesus, single file, up a rocky path up the side of a mountain. The crowds from the last scene are gone and it's just the four men alone in the wilderness. Now they get to the top and the camera zooms in on Peter, James and John who were leaning on the sticks they've used as they've walked up the path. They're catching their breath. So they're over here and then there's this weird light over here that's growing in intensity from one side of the screen. And then the camera pans out and we see what's happening. Jesus is standing here And suddenly his clothes are brilliant white, so white that they seem to almost be glowing. Then the camera lens adjusts to this new light and we see two other shapes come into focus. And we realise it's another two men in some kind of conversation with Jesus. Now, in true American movie style, I like to explain things to us, just in case we're not quite there. So the script explains to us through Peter. Peter says, let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. So now we know that's Moses and Elijah, they're long gone, but they're now standing here with Jesus on top of a mountain that was supposed to have been deserted but for the four men who just climbed it. So we're adjusting to what we're seeing and then this fog rolls down and it surrounds them. And we hear this voice that doesn't belong to any of the bodies that are standing around. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
And then the fog clears and the figures of the men start to become clear again. And we realise again that there are only four of them, Jesus and his three disciples. And the disciples are kind of looking around. They're a bit confused, as I would be. So then they head off down the mountain again with Jesus telling them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And we go to an ad break. So that's our movie scene. And I feel like it would be a little bit random in the middle of the rest of the story from Jesus' life. Especially if the first part of the movie has been about Jesus walking around like a regular guy. He's preaching, he's healing people. Maybe that's not so regular. Eating dinner, lunch, whatever, with people in the local area. And then there's this sudden change of pace, this weird science fiction bit in the middle. Now, admittedly, in Mark's gospel so far, we've seen some miracles, so we've had a bit of a clue that Jesus isn't your average man. But then there's this, and then there's Jesus' cryptic comment at the end. Leaves us wondering, probably, what the heck is going on? Why were Moses and Elijah there? Were they real? Where did they go? Whose voice was that? Presumably that voice was God's, but by the direct instruction. Now, there are a whole lot of things we can ponder from today's text, and I hope that you do. I encourage you to sit with it when you get home. The specific thing I thought we could look at today is Peter's reaction in verse 5, because that's the bit that makes me giggle. We've got Peter here, and he's known for putting his mouth into gear often before his brain. Hands up if you've ever done that. Just me? All right, a few nods, that's good. So when I do, my brain usually kicks in about halfway through my sentence, late enough for it not to be helpful, but early enough that I realise what I've done. So I can sympathise, I think, a little bit with poor Peter. In fact, in chapter 8, Peter's just had a telling off from Jesus over something else he's said. So if you've got your Bible open, flip back a chapter to chapter 8, just looking at verse 31 to 33. He, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So here we see poor Peter being called Satan. And this is just for sticking up for Jesus and thinking he's doing the right thing. Yet just a few verses later in today's reading, we've got Peter right alongside Jesus again, having an adventure. And I think this is really beautiful because despite the fact that Peter seems to often and quite publicly get it wrong, Jesus continues to spend time with him. He continues to give him opportunities to be involved and intentionally includes Peter in some really, really special moments like this one. Because despite his slip-ups, Peter is keen to follow Jesus, even if he gets it wrong. Anyway, back to today's text. And Peter is one of these three disciples that Jesus chose to take up the mountain. So up they go. And when they get to the top, Jesus is transfigured before them. Now, that's not language we use every day. But at this moment, Peter, James and John see Jesus in a new way. He's standing with them like he always was. But he's transformed somehow into something or someone like they've never seen before. And at this moment, they get a glimpse of Jesus' glory. And up until this point, they've encountered Jesus as a man. But now as they stand here on the mountain, they see him for who he really is. And then they hear God speak. And he clearly identifies Jesus as his son. And just in case that wasn't quite amazing enough, 
They see two historical figures who they would have known from their Jewish traditional stories. And these historical figures appear and they stand around and they have a bit of a chat. Now what an experience, don't you think? Or is that, has that happened to anyone here? It's never happened to me. No? Okay, I'm not missing anything. So Jesus is standing with them and his, his clothes are so bright white that he's practically glowing and he can set the laundry powder commercial here. But Jesus is standing there and he's glowing and he's got company. And Elijah and Moses, who were from the Old Testament and they are long gone, they're standing with him and they're having a conversation. Now it's pretty hard to imagine, I think, and perhaps a little bit hard to believe. And I think that the disciples were probably confused and speechless. All except Peter, good old Peter. What does he say in verse 5? He says, it's good for us to be here, yes. And then he says, let's put up a shelter each for you, Moses, and Elijah. Now I read this and I think, a shelter? Really, Peter? That's the best you've got? Now I've got all kinds of questions that I'd like to ask Peter about this. The first one would probably be, what the heck? Peter, you're standing in this incredible moment on this mountain in the middle of all these things going on and your first thought is being so smart? Maybe he saw the ads, I don't know. Secondly, if Moses and Elijah have reappeared from history, why would they need a tent? Surely if they're capable of time travel or whatever this is, they can look after themselves if they decide they want shelter, they could probably make it appear. And thirdly, Peter, don't you want to know what they're talking about? Why they're there, what's going on, rather than running off to do some building work? Now, it's easy to laugh or to judge Peter, and I've just done that. But we've all been Peter at some stage, I think, haven't we? How many times have we said the wrong thing just for the sake of saying something? Now, I'm a master at clumsy introductions, and I want to tell you a secret. The other day, I had someone coming into work for a fairly important meeting, and our receptionist called my office to let me know he was here, and I walked out to shake his hand, because that's what you do. I get a little bit nervous with these kinds of things, because I always feel a little bit underprepared for important meetings. But I usually bluff my way through and no one knows, but here comes a confession. On this day, I walked out into the foyer to greet him. He handed me his business card and said his name, very professional, and I said, good thanks. And he just kind of looked at me and I thought, what am I talking about? So my best response to his name was, good thanks. He hadn't even asked me how I was. Anyway, so I was so embarrassed that I tried to cover it up with saying, I'm Belinda. But unfortunately, he'd actually said that a few seconds before while I was busy blushing. So I was standing in front of him, thoroughly embarrassed. And I wonder if this is how Peter felt. Only for us, his words have been recorded in history and repeated for thousands of years, and we're talking about them today. At least with mine, only that visitor and I knew, and our receptionist, who was stifling giggles, and now you, so please don't tell everybody. But Peter said this 2,000 years ago, and we're still talking about it. And I love the fact that this passage says that he didn't know what to say of it. The disciples were frightened, but still Peter needs to speak. Now, I reckon that's a true extrovert right there. There's a lot of writing around about personality types, about introverts and extroverts, and some of it might not be that helpful, but something I've read a few times speaks about the different way that introverts and extroverts engage in conversation. They say that the introvert follows the pattern think, speak, think. Whereas the extrovert follows speaking, speak. 
And I wonder if Peter was an extrovert. That guy in the crowd that speaks first and then thinks later. Maybe he thinks later. It's a great habit to have if you want to make others in a conversation relax a little because none of us like awkward silence. And if you get a room full of introverts, that can be pretty uncomfortable at the beginning. I know this because that's me. I'm always grateful for the extrovert who will break the ice in a group conversation and help everyone relax a little. And I think this might be Peter. He's scared, he's uncomfortable, he's curious. So he speaks the first thing that comes into his mind and he blurts out something about building three shelters. So I wonder what Peter meant. Well, only he can say exactly what was going on in his mind with that question. But I wonder if it's a little clue into the significance of the moment. While Peter is scared and he doesn't really understand what he's seeing, he is able to see that something important is happening and he wants to respond. And we might laugh at him, but he's actually saying something significant. In that question, he's expressing that this moment is important and good and his desire to stay there. Maybe he felt exceptionally close to God. Maybe he wanted to learn from Elijah and Moses. Whatever it was, he wanted it to stay just as it was. Up on the mountain, close to God, with his best buddies around him and a couple of his heroes from history. And I think that we probably all have a bit of Peter in us when it comes to spiritual experiences. We have a mountaintop experience somewhere and we want to stay there. We want to build a shelter and we want to live up on the mountaintop. Now our mountaintop experience today might be a conference. We have an amazing time, the speakers are inspiring, people around us are passionate about God. And we think, if only I was in this environment all the time, I'd follow Jesus without question. Or it might be a moment in nature, particularly if you're an introvert. We feel so close to God, the sun's rays are streaming down and we imagine we can see straight into heaven. We think God is here. If only I could be here all the time. I'd be so much closer to God. Or it's a song at church. The music is just the right key and it hits us somewhere deep in the heart, in the soul. And we feel sure that God is speaking directly to us. We think this is the way to connect with God. If only we sang this song every week in this key, my faith would be so much more alive. And so it goes on. So like Peter, in our own way, we think, let's build a shelter and stay here. Let's attend that conference every time we can. We have to sing that song every week and I need to be at the beach to meet with God. But the reality is that life isn't just mountaintops. It also has valleys. After being on the mountaintop together, Jesus led his disciples back down again. On the way down, he warns them not to tell everyone what's just happened. And then they meet up with the rest of the disciples. Now, they've just come from this amazing experience that they're not allowed to talk about. And listen to what they walk into in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now, what a welcome back. Straight off the mountaintop and into an argument. And I wonder if Peter was thinking, should have stayed up there where things were good. I was close to God. I saw Jesus for who he really is. And I heard God's voice, guys. Should have built those shelters when I had the chance. Because that's a temptation. We want to be close to God, but somehow life keeps getting in the way of that. We want to focus on Jesus, but we have an annoying colleague. We want to live a life of faith and joy up on the mountain, but the car just broke down again. We want to wake up on a Monday morning with the same attitude that we had after church on Sunday, 
but someone spilt cereal all over the floor and then put the empty milk carton back in the fridge. Super annoying. And we think back to the mountaintop and it seems like a distant memory. So what does Jesus' transfiguration mean in the middle of this? Well, Peter, James and John saw Jesus in his glory on top of that mountain. While they stood there, they actually got to see Jesus for who he really is. And they heard God's voice, an audible, understandable voice, speaking directly to them and revealing something important. The kind of encounter with God that we always say we want, if only I could hear God speaking clearly. It was this incredible moment where God was tangibly real and close and they were able to hear him, not just in their thoughts, but actually physically around them. They saw Jesus shining brightly. They saw the appearance of Moses and Elijah, great men of faith. They saw and they probably felt the cloud around them and they heard God's voice. It really happened and it was amazing. No wonder Peter wanted to build shelters and stay there. Now Peter could have stayed up that mountain if he wanted, taking in the moment long after it had finished. He could have pointed to a dusty patch on the ground and said, that's where Moses was standing. And looked up to the sky and said, and a cloud just appeared and we heard this voice and it was God and he was everywhere. He could have walked around looking at the footprints in the dust and looking at them until the wind blew them away. He could have done all of that, but he would have been alone in his shelter after the story had moved on. He could have become a wise old man sitting on top of the mountain, telling anyone who came to visit what had happened there. But that wasn't what he was called to do. He was called to follow Jesus. And the real action was happening in Jesus' presence, wherever that was. Because it wasn't just because they were on a mountaintop that they met with God and they got a glimpse of Jesus' glory. It was because they were following Jesus. And in this case, Jesus led them up the mountain, but then he also led them back down. Because it wasn't building a shelter on the mountaintop that was important. It was being part of Jesus' ongoing story. And I think this is the challenge for us today. It's natural for us to be tempted to build shelters and to try and stay in moments where we've experienced God. Sometimes we live as though we've discovered some secret formula that makes God show up. It's displayed in lots of ways in our lives, both as a church and as individuals. When we have a mountaintop experience, we try to recreate it and we try to repeat it whenever we can. We sing the same songs, register for the same conferences, run the same programs. We build a shelter and we wait for God to show up and join us there. But God doesn't call us to a life of shelters. He calls us to join his story. Sometimes he leads us up the mountain, it's true. And he shows us an incredible view and then he brings us back down again. And the trip back down the mountain isn't necessarily as fun as the experience at the top. It's often much quicker as a journey than the climb up is. I imagine it would have taken the disciples and Jesus a lot of energy and time to climb the mountain. We don't know how long they were sitting at the top, but it was a short moment in three years of Jesus' ministry. Then they walked back down the mountain, and who knows how long it took them to walk back down, but my guess is not as long as it took to walk up, because gravity helps. And this happens to us today too. We might have a long climb. We might spend lots of time and energy before we get to a place where we have some kind of mountaintop experience. And then almost before we know it, we're back down the mountain again and we're immersed in daily life. Or maybe even worse, we're in some kind of valley. 
A few moments ago, we were on top of a mountain seeing Jesus for who he really is, hearing God speak to us. We were so close to God, we could have stayed there forever. Life had meaning and purpose. We were so immersed in the moment that we forgot about ourselves. We were standing next to Jesus. God was speaking directly to us. Everything was amazing. And our problems were so small. They were left down there below. They were far away and nothing mattered but Jesus. Have you ever been there? It's amazing, isn't it? I used to work for a cross-cultural mission agency and part of my job was helping short-term teams prepare to visit our long-term staff in Asia and Africa. Sometimes I also spent time helping them debrief when they came back. That's interesting times, interesting stories. They always struggled when they came back. They struggled with frustration that no one at home understood what they just experienced. They struggled that their home church and their family and their friends were so complacent about life and faith in Australia. They struggled with the availability of choice and luxury when people overseas were without basic necessities for life. But most of all, they'd actually struggled with just coming back to normal life. They'd often had a hard time overseas with culture shock, but they struggled even more coming home to a culture they knew. Because life at home is normal. For most of us, life at home doesn't seem to require hour by hour dependence on God for physical survival. We don't necessarily see God doing miraculous things in our daily routine. We can go long stretches without feeling much at all, just caught up in the same routines of everyday life. We're not always climbing mountains. But like the disciples discovered, that's also a part of following Jesus. Despite what we think we see in others' lives, life isn't always lived on a mountaintop of dazzling experiences with Jesus. Often life is spent climbing up or sliding down the mountain, or even just inching along a ground level. Maybe there are no mountains in view. Sometimes we see mountains in the distance. We might even see our friends at the top, sometimes. Most of the time it's not us actually at the top. But the thing is that Jesus isn't just on top of the mountain. He's walking alongside us wherever we are. He's even stopping to sit beside us when we're too tired to walk. He's calling us to join his story. What the disciples discovered was that it was in the moments of walking alongside Jesus, on the road to another village, sitting around the dinner table together, working side by side in their local neighbourhood. Those were the times when they learned what life could be when it was lived alongside Jesus. The mountaintops were significant, that's for sure, but it was all the in-between times when they learned what it is to follow in the everyday. So where are you right now? Are you on a mountaintop? If you are, that's great. Are you climbing on your way up? Are you descending? Or are you at the bottom somewhere? Can't even see a mountain, maybe. I can promise you that no matter where you are, Jesus is with you and he's wanting to lead you forward. He doesn't want you to stay where you are. He doesn't want you to build a shelter or try to maintain a feeling from a memory. He wants you to keep walking with him wherever it may lead. So don't get comfortable and try to stay where you are. Don't just look for a mountain top and take your shelter building materials with you. Or maybe we're not comfortable. Maybe we're on a climb up or a descent down from the mountain right now. Maybe we're needing things to get better. Maybe we're looking backwards to a time when things were better. Can I encourage you this morning not to give up and not to stop looking for Jesus? What we learn from the disciples' time on the mountaintop with Jesus is that he is God. 
and that there is more to life than the situation we find ourselves in right now. In his transfiguration, Jesus reveals that there's a lot more going on in life than just what we see. God is active and involved. And the disciples' immediate circumstances were that they were on the road a lot. They were travelling with Jesus, they were meeting people, they were busy, they felt responsibility to the people they were meeting, and often they didn't know where they would sleep that night. And on top of that, the priests and the leaders of their community had this growing dislike for them. In the middle of all this, though, they were reminded that they were part of a much bigger story. The same one as Moses and Elijah. The same one as Jesus. So my question today for each of us is, are we following Jesus into the future or are we lingering on a mountaintop to live off memories? Are we building a shelter or are we willing to join the story?